Welcome to the Mobility Innovators Podcast. Hello everyone. I'm so happy to welcome all listeners from around the world to the Mobility Innovators Podcast. I'm your host Jaspal Singh. Mobility Innovators Podcast invites key innovators in the transportation and logistics sector to share their thought about the key changes in the sector, about their work and what is their forecast for the future. Today, I'll be speaking with an amazing venture capitalist who started a mobility-focused fund long back. He's the founder and general partner of Money Mobility, based out of Tel Aviv, Israel. Tel Aviv is emerging as the capital of mobility startup in the world. Money Mobility has raised around 160 million so far and has invested in more than 37 startups. Some of the notable investment include Autonomo, DP, Oralab, Revel, Turo, Upstream Security, Ridecell, etc. He has already exited four of them and more to follow. His involvement at the intersection of transportation, technology and policy dates back to early 2000 when he helped establish Washington DC based Energy Security Policy and Advocacy Group, securing America's future energy safe. On whose board he continued to serve. He's the director and advisor at many other mobility startup within the money mobility and his broader network. I'm so happy to welcome Michael Grenoff, general partner and founder of Money Mobility. It's now time to listen and learn. Hello Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Great. Uh, so today I'll be spending time getting to know more about you, your professional journey and your thought on innovation and technology trend in the mobility sector. To begin with, I would like you to share some fun fact about uh, yourself with our listener. And also, are there any interesting fact about your career that are not on LinkedIn? Uh, okay, so, so there's, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot that's uh, not on LinkedIn, I guess. Um, I, have a, I have a broad range of interests. I've been lucky to be exposed to a lot of uh, amazing things uh, in, in my life, um, including um, having a, been a, a, a friend and a fan of uh, the late composer Stephen Sondheim and uh, raced uh, harness horses and, and, and ran a lot of marathons. So um, there's, a, there, there's a, lot that I, a lot that I've done these days. I, I, I feel uh, a, a, little, a little bit unusually, singularly focused on, uh, on the task at hand, which is uh, finding the most impactful uh, companies around uh, new mobility for uh, the benefit of the, uh, the planet and the people on it. Oh, great. Good to know that uh, you're a marathon runner and all. So, so great to learn. Uh, that's why you maintain your physique so well. Now, <laughs> coming to my second question, you know, you completed your bachelor from Tufts University and later uh, did your MBA and JD from Kellogg's Northwestern University. And uh, you're also credited with the creation of Washington-based uh, policy and advocacy organization, Securing America's Future Energy, which is quite interesting. What is the story behind that move? And I read some article which mentioned that 9-11 had a big influence on your, on your career move. Uh, and if I add, uh, later you moved to Tel Aviv and launched this Money Mobility Fund in 2015. So I'm curious to learn why you decided to become a venture capitalist and focus on area of mobility and transportation. Uh, how did your interest shift from policy advocate to innovation? It's, it's a quite a big move. Quite a big question. <laughs> um, but I, I should begin by uh, clarifying that the um, person who is singularly responsible for the 
uh, impact and success of uh, that organization in Washington that you mentioned, uh, SAFE, um, which uh, used to be Securing America's Future Energy. Um, that person is, is its founder and, and, and still CEO, uh, my friend Robbie Diamond. I'm honored okay. to still serve on, on the board. He and I began having conversations, uh, as you say, in the wake of 9-11, um, around the fact that um, there was a real distortion in that uh, oil has a monopoly on global transportation. The entire lifeblood of the global economy um, is uh, transportation, and it is uh, almost exclusively powered uh, by oil. And in addition to that, um, oil, you know, it does not exist in a free market. Uh, yeah. Like, for example, electricity, of which there are a variety of ways to generate electricity that you know, compete against each other. Um, you know, uh, oil um, is uh, uh, the, the price is based on, um, obviously, supply and demand. And that uh, supply is, is manipulated by, by the OPEC cartel. And so it's effectively a tax on every person on the planet. And yeah. that's, uh, that's a huge distortion uh, on, uh, uh, on the global economy and on uh, uh, global security. And I think we've seen in the last several months with the situation uh, with Russia and Ukraine yeah. that every geopolitical issue um, has an Achilles heel, which is energy. And um, so that was the um, impetus of us starting that organization. And through that organization, um, I got uh, educated as to the fact that um, if you really wanted to break the monopoly of oil and transportation, only one way to do it, and, and that's electricity. And then furthermore, I, uh, I came to the conclusion uh, with the help of some folks that I, I, I spoke to uh, at MIT in the, in the mid-2000s uh, that um, because of the trajectory of the price of energy storage, yeah. that actually uh, electric transportation, at least in light uh, uh, duty uh, uh, ground transportation um, was, was actually inevitable because uh, at a certain point, the, uh, the price of, of energy storage would um, drop below that of, of oil. Frankly, I thought that would happen much sooner than it, than it has. And the reason for that is I didn't expect the US to reverse a 40 year decline in oil production uh, hmm. as rapidly as it did um, with the advent of extraction technologies in the uh, early 2010s. Um, that I don't uh, begrudge that fact. Um, it, it was good for uh, America, for uh, economy and jobs and trade balance, but it did uh, take away a lot of the urgency around uh, diversifying our transportation fuel yeah. and um, actually um, gave a big leg up, I think, to, uh, to China, which at that time was adding vehicles at a furious rate, didn't want yeah. to become dependent on imported oil as the U.S. had, and also saw an opportunity, frankly, to... Um, leapfrog and become a leader in electric vehicle uh, technology and the supply chain for batteries. And, and they have done a very, very good job at that. And I think the U.S. and the West has a lot of catching up to do as a result yeah. of that. So um, there was a lot more to, to your question, but uh, maybe we'll, 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 uh, we'll get into the rest of it as we, as we continue the conversation. Great. No, thank you so much uh, for sharing these facts. And in fact, uh, I, I traveled to China in 2008 and 2010. And I saw at that time, they have a big fleet of electric vehicle and all. So they really has done a good job. I, I fully agree with you. Now, a little bit about your portfolio. So you have invested in more than 64 companies so far uh, as per our last count. I, I don't know, probably it's more uh, because you did a lot of angel investment too. 
and you already exit four of them. And, uh, and you invested in quite a wide range of company, including sensor, software simulation, autonomous vehicles, cybersecurity, micromobility, uh, and also some new mobility business models. So it will be great if you can share more about your investment thesis and geography focus and what are your investment strategies? Um, yeah, I should probably fill in the, um, the most important chapter between um, the success that we had with SAFE uh, in passing an energy bill in, the, in, in Washington in 2006 that had, among yeah. other things, first in the world electric vehicle incentives and um, the uh, uh, venture capital fund that you uh, allude to. So um, after I became convinced that electrification was inevitable, I went out, tried to um, figure out how to make a business of that or how to invest in that thesis and uh, happened, happened upon two gentlemen early 2007. And quite honestly, I, I, um, I, I probably made the wrong, the wrong choice. Maybe the single biggest binary uh, mistake in, in business investing history as I picked a, a, a company that ended up going to zero and passed up a company <laughs> that ended up going to a trillion, although I guess it's a little down from that. And that was uh, when I, I chose a better place over, over Tesla. Yeah. Um, but I'll say that I did that, I think, for uh, it was an honest mistake, uh, which is to say that I think um, the model of a better place, which was a company that was founded in uh, early 2008, the model was, um, I think, potentially uh, one of the most powerful business models uh, ever conceived, as it was conceived by its founder, Shai Gassi. Um, and I think had uh, the execution been up to the imagination of the model, that actually better place would have had a bigger impact than Tesla, uh, because the idea really was to uh, make EVs affordable to the masses much earlier than it turns out that they have become uh, through a model that I won't go into yeah. depth in, except to say that it really separated the car from the battery, made, made the battery kind of part of the energy infrastructure owned by the operator, in this case, better place. And then you buy the car without the premium of the battery and you pay for the miles that you use, similar to the way you pay for data on your, on your cell phone. Um, any event, uh, when that did come to an end in, in 2013, um, we ended up moving to Israel. It was supposed to have been a temporary move, became permanent, but it was right at a moment really where Israel was experiencing um, a real uh, uh, renaissance and innovation around automotive and mobility. And I started, um, based on the experience I've had during Better Place, I started helping out a bunch of these companies and I started um, doing some uh, angel investing myself and that's what led to the, to the fund that, 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 that you alluded to. I'm not sure where you got the number of portfolio companies. We have, I think, right now 37 portfolio okay. companies um, in, in eight countries. We've, we've uh, raised uh, two funds, uh, totaling about $160 million, and um, almost fully invested uh, both of them at this point into those 37 companies that are across eight countries. But most of the early investments were in deep tech around automotive that came out of Israel. Okay. Okay. And, and you have any specific pieces like investing only in mobility or you're now expanding outside also mobility? No, our, our, uh, we're one of the few venture capital funds you'll meet that does not have the word venture or capital in our name uh, because our name is Maneva Mobility because mobility is what we do. It's all we know. We don't really know how to do anything else. And, uh, but it's a pretty broad sector. It is um, uh, about the movement of people and goods and it's about making that movement cleaner and safer and uh, less expensive, more accessible, uh, more convenient for people because um, mobility is really fundamental 
And, um, and, and in fact, upward economic mobility is tied yeah. very closely to physical mobility. And um, it's, um, it's, it's undergoing enormous change. It's undergoing a digital revolution, uh, very, very similar to that of which we have seen in the last decades around information and communication. And um, I, it's, uh, it's, it's very exciting because um, even as uh, we're living more densely in, in cities um, that where it is unrealistic and uh, impossible for everyone to have their own individual five-passenger internal combustion engine car, um, the uh, opportunities uh, that electrification and uh, digitization and really the uh, diversification of form factors and business models uh, really, uh, I think, are in this decade going yeah. to open opportunities to, to billions of people to be able to uh, get around in, in, in less expensive, safer, uh, cleaner, and more efficient ways. And I think the, the impact that will have on, on the global economy will be uh, phenomenal. Thanks for sharing. I fully align with your vision. It's like how to make mobility more affordable and safe because uh, for any economic activity, you need uh, to move people. And, and people who are at the bottom of pyramid are always suffer because they don't have the safe and affordable choice to move and all. So now you mentioned that you moved to Tel Aviv uh, for a temporary reason, and then it became permanent. And, and I must say that it's one of my favorite city too. Uh, even though I haven't get a chance to visit it yet, probably later this year, I'll be visiting Tel Aviv. One thing I love about the city is it's, it's emerging as a capital of mobility startup in the world. There are so many mobility startups which are emerging from Tel Aviv. Uh, there was Ecomotion happened uh, last month, and it was great to see so many companies. Do you want to share what is the secret sauce? Why the Tel Aviv is emerging as a mobility startup hub uh, in the world? And uh, also, I think you mentioned somewhere in the past about the Mobileye like how that company has emerged and, and was, was the first one to go out of Israel. So is it because of Mobileye Mafia or is it because of the policy structure or government support or education system? What is the secret uh, of the city? Well, I, honestly, I don't think that in this case that you can separate mobility from Israel's um, startup uh, innovation sector. You know, the, the, the book, uh, Startup Nation, written by my, my good friends Nancy and Hertzel Singers now, I think about 12 years old, and they wrote that book uh, because everyone wanted to understand exactly what you're asking, what makes Israel so inherently innovative, yeah. and try to answer it. And uh, what's amazing is that in the years that have passed since, I think that innovation has only accelerated uh, in the volume and, and the quality. And that goes across the sectors and, you know, everything from cybersecurity to fintech to, to SaaS to um, every, everything under the sun. And mobility has certainly been a part of that. Um, you know, Mobileye uh, definitely deserves a, a, a tremendous amount of credit for inspiring, I think, a, an enormous wave of mobility uh, startups in Israel. But I wouldn't describe it really as the Mobileye mafia because another thing that Mobileye and uh, their, their, their CEO, Amnon Shua, um, I think one of the most talented men in Israel, one of the things they really have done is uh, retained their talent quite well. Wow. And, uh, I, I had thought, especially after the acquisition of Intel, you know, we would see exactly what we described, that a lot of uh, refugees from mobile out starting their own companies. And, you know, that's normal in the tech world. It's normal in Israel. But yeah. in the case of Mobileye, they really, I think, have retained their talent uh, to a tremendous uh, degree. Uh, that's very, very admirable, but they have been a source of inspiration. And that's why we see 
something like 600 mobility startups over the last decade uh, here in Israel. And uh, many of them in our portfolio, as you say, everything from sensors uh, like the uh, 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 public company, Arbe Robotics in our portfolio that does uh, high definition uh, radar um, to uh, automotive uh, cybersecurity. Uh, we have in our portfolio two such companies, C2A and upstream security. Um, hmm. To uh, monetization of, of vehicle data uh, like Autonomo, uh, uh, to simulation uh, like Cognata, and then uh, there's uh, even uh, teleoperation. Phantom Auto is a company based in California, but having their R&D uh, here in Israel. And uh, those are just a few from our portfolio. There's uh, there's like I said, hundred, hundreds more. And um, you know, it's uh, it, it's it's been you know a very exciting thing to watch watch all these emerge and to get to see these incredible uh, talented founders. Great, no thanks for sharing. Six hundred mobility startup in one decade. That's that's amazing, and especially in only in mobility, it's it's quite impressive. And I I, I know many of these founder, uh, especially Optibus and uh, Move It and all, and I know uh, what the work they are doing. It's quite global. Now shifting gear a bit. You must be meeting with hundreds of industry experts, founders, and ecosystem partners who must be sharing a lot of idea about future of mobility. They must be coming with you, talking about how the future of mobility will change. So I would like to ask you which technological innovation you are more bullish about as a VC, as a, as a person, as an expert in mobility, and what's your views on other? Because there is a lot of talk about autonomous mobility, mobility as a service, urban air mobility, attracting a lot of money, electric vehicle, which you mentioned, you were you were very bullish earlier to uh, micro mobility, you invested in, in that space and uh, any other area where you feel that's the future we should look for. Um, sure, it's a, again, a broad <laughs> I'll say that, um, look, uh, as we've said, I think on electrification, we now have consensus. Everybody agrees. Every car company's got a target date. Every country, cities, everybody's got a target at 2030, 2035. All electric vehicles. It's a fantastic thing. Um, but uh, one of the things I think people tend to lose sight of is electric vehicles don't necessarily have to come in conventional vehicle format. Yeah. And uh, one of the uh, implications of digitizing mobility is having a diversity of form factors. And in fact, if um, you look outside my office window here, you'll see hundreds of, uh, of kick scooters uh, on the streets. Uh, there are now four operators of kick scooters in Tel Aviv. I think they're all uh, profitable in the city. Uh, and, and why is that? It's because, well, Tel Aviv is a very crowded, congested city. Um, nobody, nobody wants to drive through Tel Aviv. Uh, I don't even want to get in a cab to go across Tel Aviv because, you know, it's aggravating to sit uh, in traffic. Um, and, um, uh, but, but the city also is flat. Uh, the weather is good 350 days a year. And, um, uh, and, and it's obviously a, a very, uh, as we've said, a very tech savvy city. So um, the best way to get around is, is scooters. A lot of people figure that out. Um, even in, in my own demographic, I think, which is not quite uh, the same demographic as, as most of the cities, considerably younger. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, we see that in some other uh, major cities around, around the world as well. So, um, you know, as far as uh, autonomy, uh, as you mentioned, is concerned, you know, I think most people, I get asked a lot, as I think everyone around the business does, when are we going to see the driverless cars? Well, yeah. um, you know, depending on how you, depending on what you actually mean by the question, the answer could be 
they've been here for several years already, or it could be, they'll never be here. So you have to really get specific. And I think um, <clears throat> that, you know, as far as uh, robo taxis are concerned, as far as like the ubiquity of being able to summon uh, vehicles uh, without drivers to take you around uh, major metropolitan areas, um, it, it's still going to be some time because one of the things you need, you need three things to, to, to actually enable uh, that kind of a service. You need the technology to be 100% ironclad. Being better than the average human driver is not nearly good enough. It really has to yeah. be near perfect. Uh, and there's so many edge cases and it's taken a lot longer than a lot of people thought to be able to work that out. So you need that technology. You need um, a uh, regulatory regime. Uh, yeah. You need policymakers to enable uh, that to be a legal service. And, um, and the thing about that is that um, uh, policymakers tend towards inertia unless you have the third ingredient, which is market pull, which means mm -hmm. consumers uh, screaming from the rooftops, we want this. As you know, Uber kind of successfully um, yeah. was able to generate. But Uber without the driver, which is what we were describing, is not something that I think the average consumer uh, feels very passionately about these days. Um, and, um, and, and, and I think uh, it takes uh, quite a while for the um, economic argument uh, to become a plane to people to the point where the demand is palpable enough, policymakers then uh, kick into gear. Uh, plus the fact on that first point that as I said, the technology uh, and all the edge case not clearly worked out. So all those three things have to come together. I think it's still several more years before that becomes something uh, ubiquitous in any sense. Although, mm. you know, Cruise did just get its license offer um, pay, paid commercial drives in private yeah. cars in San Francisco, Waymo obviously operating in Chandler, Arizona now for quite a while. So uh, it, it's, it's on its way. It's going to take a long time. On the other hand, when you talk about automating uh, vehicles like trucks, which operate uh, mostly on highways and where there are, are a lot fewer edge cases yeah. and where uh, their uh, technology really is I think um, much, much closer to being uh, as ironclad as it needs to be. Plus the fact that we all are aware of the supply chain crisis that we've undergone globally yeah. over the last couple of years. Um, even my mom asks me about the truck driver shortage and that's <laughs> the stuff on front page news. So what are we getting there? We're getting that market pull. And I think that market pull is starting to, um, first of all, weaken a little bit the opposition to this idea that comes mainly from the unions, which I think are misguided in their fears. Yeah. Uh, and um, and, and uh, all of a sudden the policymakers now say, hey, you know, this is something we gotta pay attention to. We have to look into enabling. Um, good friend of, 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 of uh, Maneves is a uh, state senator in uh, Florida named Jeff Brandis, who's been a leader in this. I think we're gonna see uh, in the US and in, in, in enough states, uh, the policy move to the point where uh, autonomous trucks become a reality really in the next few years. So I think it's just, it's a premise on which we're basing a lot of investment and uh, that uh, I think will be uh, tremendously uh, impactful uh, economically.
No, thanks for sharing, Michael. I I fully agree with you. Uh, in ta- in fact, I know that you also cycle to work, so you don't drive in Tel Aviv. So what you mentioned about it's too congested, and everybody loves to cycle and all. And I, I I agree with your point about autonomous mobility. It's not just the technology, the regulatory regime as well as the market pull is very important. I work with Uber, so I know. uh it was a different story altogether when uber launched and autonomous mobility not everybody is really fond of now following up to this question uh in autonomous mobility there are two different kind of technology which are uh, going on and there is a lot of discussion about lidar versus camera based uh, sensing approach or decision making approach you invested in couple of company in lidar space and all as a vc which one you are more bullish about and and why uh you know this is a uh, very technical argument uh there are a lot of interests on all sides um we we invested in a in a lighter company that that made a run of it but uh, decided after a couple of years that uh it actually when when we we invited invested in a company called uh, Oryx which had a tremendous and talented team um but also a very uh down to earth and and rational team and at the time that they got started there were really i'd say less than 5 well funded lighter startups in the world and they had a very unique proposition uh but then two things happened it turned out that um uh as we've said the market for autonomous uh, cars for at least for robo taxis and volume turned out to be a lot um further away than we expected it to be mm. and uh and a lot of competitors showed up uh within uh, a year or two of their uh, founding there was you know 40 or 50 companies that had received significant funding to lidar so we all you know kind of looked at each other and said you know is it worth pursuing this and 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 concluded that you know we still have a lot of money left there and um uh, and, and and probably there were better things that that we could do with it and that was i think a very uh, adult decision by the the management board of of Oryx but um you know meanwhile uh, uh across town uh, uh, our friends at Innovis have uh, uh made a tremendous amount of progress now public company and have contracts with uh, real OEMs to uh have have their Uh, lidar on uh, actual commercial vehicles very exciting i think we'll see more of that look um you know the obviously the, the biggest proponent of camera only has been uh tesla um yeah. they also happen to have several million cars uh, without lidar already on on the roads which they promise will be full autonomous so you know um, whether whether that is a position taken from engineering um uh, prowess or uh, uh from uh, being a, a realistic about business is uh un- unknowable uh, and they certainly could be correct uh it's not not a frivolous argument but um uh, my own instinct is that you know uh, cost of lidar is is declining and hmm. uh and and redundancy is important as i said it's not enough for autonomous vehicles to be just better than the average human driver they have to be near perfect Uh, yeah. so i i think uh i think uh, all we'll see all flavors uh, but um i i think uh ultimately uh people will take the position of the more sensors and the uh the more uh done to see the uh, the better so you, so you are bullish on lidar i would say i i think lidar has a future like i said huh. uh, it's it's complicated future <laughs> <laughs> because uh, when when will we have uh, um vehicles produced in volume of, at least for level 4 although you know now uh, yeah. uh like they're going to say they're selling to level 3 systems and uh, and and lighter has other applications but lighter is here to stay um to the degree to which um it's uh, going to be ubiquitous is 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 what's in question I'm not uh really uh, the most qualified person to 
to answer uh, what that will be, I don't think anybody knows for sure, um, but, uh, but it's obviously uh, not, as they say, a, a, a blue ocean anymore. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. And I agree, uh, what you mentioned is that uh, different technology will survive. So it's not only the one technology which will be there. So we will see different technology and one of them will will be stronger and one of them will be also running in different part of the world. So not one technology will work everywhere. Now you were very bullish about electric vehicle. In fact, like you mentioned, you invested in better place uh, and you were thinking it will change the business model, not only the buying cars and all how bullish you are on hydrogen and fuel cell vehicle because china has already started investing in that technology so you think we will see kind of a leapfrog uh, like some country will not have uh, electric and go ahead with hydrogen or you think that it's still far away so um i've i've heard about hydrogen as long as i've been around in this business and even before in fact uh, i remember the speech which i went <clears throat> back and looked up uh, given by President George W. Bush, uh, turned out it was in um, early uh, 2003, in which he said that a, a child born at that time, uh, their first car might be a hydrogen car. Um, mm. In fact, my daughter was born uh, shortly thereafter, and uh, she drives an electric car. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, uh, I uh, so I, I I have to say a little, a little jaded on, on on hydrogen as a mass adopted uh, uh, application uh, for for transportation, um, but always open minded as it's important to be in our business. And uh, there's a startup here in Israel, H2 Pro, that's hmm. attracted a lot of funding, a lot of attention, uh, yeah. um, and that uh, you know we're gonna we're, we're gonna we're, we're gonna continue to learn from, um, but. Um, you know, I think uh, I think people have, um, to some extent, under underestimated the capacity of EVs to evolve or batteries to become more energy dense and less expensive. Uh, and um, so, uh, whether there's a role for hydrogen, heavy duty, or or more, uh, is, is an open question. Um, but um, I'm still uh, in the skeptic camp on that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's. I would say it's. It's a very early day because China recently started investing big way in hydrogen, but still, it's not fully commercial like uh, like electric vehicle. And I think it will take more time, especially for the smaller vehicles. So probably the heavy duty vehicle will come first, but the smaller vehicle, the cars and all, will take its own time. Now, I want to discuss about this battery and rare earth material. So you mentioned that oil was not good because of this OPEC uh, cartel and there was a control, but I think the battery is also going through now the same phase with the rare earth mineral becoming like a new oil and some companies are controlling it. Uh, venture capitalist firm invested more than $30 billion in last two years alone in the battery technology. There are a lot of discussion about different chemistries and solid state batteries and, and others. How do you think this space will evolve, the battery technology and all? And I think you have invested in a couple of startups in this space. And how are you betting on different battery technologies? Are you bullish about one particular kind of chemistry or you are putting money in all kinds of different uh, startups? We're, we're actually, when it comes to um, the, the actual design manufacture of batteries themselves, we're um, pretty agnostic and we're pretty much uh, staying away. Um, we... Um, I've seen uh, since I started paying attention the price of energy storage uh, go from over a thousand dollars a kilowatt hour to uh, very close, depending on who you listen to, very close to a hundred dollars a kilowatt hour. Yeah. Um, most of that has come through incremental 
uh, improvements uh, of, of year, year, year after year, um, not through uh, huge breakthroughs in chemistry. Um, you know, solid state is obviously very interesting, a lot of attention, a lot of money, and uh, I, I, I hope that it, it becomes a major player in the industry. Um, there are other approaches and the degree to which we can minimize the need for rare earth minerals, the need for uh, extraction uh, and mining of uh, uh, some of these things that are, um, you know, uh, uh, have, have adverse impact in, in their development, uh, the yeah. better. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the uh, battery uh, research is similar in my mind to, I often analogize it to drug discovery, you know, costs a whole lot of money and your odds are uh, not that strong uh, uh, as, you, as you invest that money. Obviously, if you're successful, it's a, an enormous return, but um, that's uh, one area in which we have um, played it a little bit safe and um, looked more towards uh, the applications of, of electric rather than the uh, development of the, of, of the underlying uh, of battery technologies. Ah, I love your analogy about the battery technology like a drug discovery. So there are more misses than hits. So, <laughs> and, it, and it's more about incremental growth rather than radical innovation and all. Uh, I fully agree with you. It's, it's still a kind of a space where nobody can predict. I remember uh, in, in sometime back, you mentioned about that. If you know which technology will work, probably you'll put more money in that area and, and make billions. Uh, but uh, it's, it's hard to predict uh, how that space will evolve. Uh, now, one topic you mentioned earlier is the cybersecurity, and and I think it's emerging as a very big challenge uh, for every industry, also for mobility industry. In fact, there was a survey done by Statistica, and they found that uh, 45.5% uh, of survey respondents claim that their organization faced one or five successful attack during past year, and I think it will increase. Uh, Tel Aviv is emerging as a hub for best cybersecurity companies in the world. So. What do you think about future cyber uh, attacks look like? And what is your assessment? How strong or weak mobility players are in this area? Because sometimes they feel it's not, uh, it's more the technology company which can be affected, but uh, how you think it can affect, uh, in fact, the mobility company as well? Um, cyber security is a permanent feature of the landscape uh, within mobility and within every other sector. And that is just going to be the case uh, going forward. Um, and uh, Israel is enormous, uh, even more than mobility, uh, an enormous hub for cybersecurity. Um, and, um, and, and, and it's uh, you know, going to be essential to every industry and uh, to every individual. Um, as, as we see it, uh, it's the, the, there's a dilemma, which is that until there is um, some event which uh, really galvanizes public sentiment, it's hard to uh, it's hard for car makers, for example, to invest a lot of money. They're 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 looking to to um, really reduce costs in every area, and uh, here you're you're never able to prove that this investment had a high uh, IRR. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think uh, the regulations are moving in the direction of requiring uh, more and more security around vehicles, particularly as we get to greater um, autonomy, greater, greater automation. Yeah. Um, and um, as I said, we've, uh, I, I think we've, we've looked at close to 20 uh, automotive cybersecurity companies over the years. Um, some of them 
Uh, you may have heard of some of them have, uh, have, have, have been acquired. Uh, many of them are still operating. Two of them are in a portfolio I mentioned earlier, uh, upstream security that's cloud-based and uh, C-Way, which is uh, vehicle-based. But, okay. uh, uh, you know, I, I think um, that uh, th this is uh, obviously a sector not um, limited to mobility, but um, certainly mobility is, is, is going to be an area that um, uh, it's just going to be baseline to have uh, a solid uh, protection against uh, the uh, potential for uh, invasion uh, over, over the internet. Well, thanks for sharing that. I agree with you. It's hard to justify the RRR until unless you have you are under attack. So uh, a lot of these transit companies as well, especially in North America, they were under attack recently. And uh, now they are thinking to hire a chief security officer or chief cybersecurity officer within the organization. Earlier, they never had those kind of a role. But now, like you rightly mentioned, now the regulation is becoming more and more stringent in that space. Now, thanks for sharing that, Michael. I mean, it's a lot of learning point from you. Now, I want to discuss a little more about the investment side. Uh, and uh, basically, my question is that you and your team must be receiving hundreds of decks every week uh, from the founder and must be meeting thousands of founders every year. Uh, even though last couple of years were very different, you know, the due diligence were happening in hours, uh, people were closing deals in days and things were, things were very, uh, in rush, but now things are getting back to normal. Uh, so I'm curious to learn, how do you evaluate pitch decks and what are the top five traits, which are must in a good founder? So when you evaluate, you meet a founder, what are the things you look that if he qualify or don't qualify, uh, for investment? Um, uh, you know, an another big question you ask. So, uh, uh, we, we do, we are lucky enough to see, um, many, many hundreds of deals every year and we can only do a handful. Um, yeah. and so we are forced to be a very, um, picky. And in fact, uh, we have, we have the constraints of the peculiar world of venture economics, which is to say that, uh, when you're, when you're in the business, we're in the picking companies at their earliest stage. Uh, you go into every deal knowing that the odds are against you uh, to be able to go from an idea to a highly uh, profitable, valuable uh, product or service. And as a result, um, you, you need to have a starting point that if you are successful in getting the market and getting to, to sales that this company can become valuable enough to pay for all the other ones that yeah. don't uh, end up being successful. So that puts a, a very uh, peculiar uh, constraint on, uh, on, on, on in, in, that I've had to get used to as I transitioned from individual investing to, to venture investing. But uh, as, you, as you referenced, everything starts from the founder. And um, in my experience, it's heads and shoulders more important than anything else, including the idea, including the market. Um, including the technology, because uh, all those things are subject to, uh, to to change and adjust as the world changes around us. The founder um, is, is is central, and we are extremely lucky to be working with an unbelievable uh, roster of founders um, in all over the world. Uh, it's been a privilege to get to know these people over the last number of years, um, those in our portfolio, and many of those where it, we couldn't make it work, but we've stayed in touch. We try to be helpful and we've learned a lot from those as well. Um, if you're asking me for five uh, particular attributes, um, 
you know, integrity is obviously at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, uh, for, for the most part, uh, I, I, I don't think that that's ever really been an issue in, in, uh, in the companies that, that we've seen. Uh, for me, um, humility is, 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 is central. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I have seen many companies um, that uh, failed really on account of hubris. And um, you, you, you have to understand that there's a lot more that you don't know than you know. You have yeah. to be willing to learn from everyone at every turn. And so that humility is, is, is a central characteristic without which uh, we, we don't invest. And people will point to some outliers or some people that uh, we may all know their personalities and uh, don't necessarily check that box. Yeah. And the matter is that uh, there are exceptions to every rule. I don't know which comes first, chicken or the egg in that <laughs> regard, but I'm perfectly happy to uh, miss a good deal or two um, to uh, not saying life's too short to work with folks that uh, are not down to earth in that way. Obviously, yeah. um, obviously, uh, the creativity, uh, determination, um, humanity, these are all, these are all things that I think um, uh, we, we, we are, are essential to being successful in uh, the very, very challenging world of trying to birth new uh, ways of, 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 of looking at the world, and in our case, new ways of moving people and, and goods around. I, I loved your answer and I, I fully agree with you that humility is very important and and I can see that you are also very humble. Like whenever I write you an email, I always get a response uh, within four hours and five hours, even though wherever you are so busy, but still you manage to reply back and all. So I, I can imagine that you expect the same uh, treatment from others to stay humble and learn from each other and, and ready to share with others. So thanks for I've that. I've had a lot of opportunity to be humble. So thank you. <laughs> no, thank you for that. Uh, and and now, you know, my next question is that uh, there is plenty of money available in the market uh, if you have a good idea. I mean, nowadays there is no doubt of money. Uh, people are talking about raising big round. And even though there is a shortage of, like there is uh, this winter, uh, VC winter is going on, but still people are raising money. So, uh, nowadays, founders are not purely looking for money anymore. They are looking for more strategic value. Uh, what are the other key points that the founder should look while taking investor on board? Uh, and in fact, I would say like how money mobility beside money, what are the other things you offer to the founders so that they can be successful? You know, a- a- any early stage venture fund will tell you that they uh, are value added to their companies. I'm sure many, many are. For us, um, uh, being as sector focused as we are, um, it would be the biggest waste in the world if we weren't actually uh, adding value to, to our companies. And, and I think that um, if you ask them, they'll tell you that we, that we do uh, in very tangible ways on a very regular basis. Um, the ways that we do that, first of all, um, we haven't really talked about our, our LP base, but we're blessed to have uh, some sensational companies that are invested in our fund, including uh, many companies from automotive industry, uh, from Hyundai and Jaguar Land Rover and uh, BMW and uh, many tier ones, in fact, uh, suppliers from uh, Asia, Europe and the US. Hmm. And uh, we, we count on, um, on, 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 on these uh, supporters of ours to help us uh, evaluate uh, technologies. And also once we make an investment, to help us um, help our portfolio uh, with their product market fit 
uh, with um, getting to market and, um, and fine tuning their their ideas. So um, you know, uh, and and um, having been around um, as as long as we've been around, as long as I've been around, and one of the uh, benefits of age, I guess, is uh, you, you've met a lot of people, and you, you got a, a network that is is out there to be able to be helpful to these to these companies. And yeah. uh, I can't tell you how many uh, introductions a day uh, are made uh, on behalf of our portfolio companies, whether it be to uh, later round investors, whether it be to potential customers, whether it be to subject matter experts in particular yeah. areas that they that they need uh, help with. Uh, and and our uh, people say, how do you how do you manage a, a portfolio of, of, of that size with uh, with the team? Well, first I'll say that um, we are building the team. The team the team is growing. Uh, but second of all, um, one of the ways we do it is through uh, really putting an emphasis on the informal communication. So sometimes yeah. um, there will be um, a WhatsApp group that you know might include uh, some members of our team, some members of our companies, uh, uh, of our uh, portfolio companies team, uh, maybe also you know uh, one or two of our uh, strategic advisors, of which we're lucky to have a tremendous uh, group. And um, we some of the most uh, value-adding and uh, profoundly important uh, uh, things that have happened uh, have happened just inside of those WhatsApp groups on a on a quick uh, um, response basis. So we definitely try really hard to be um, as helpful as we possibly can be to our portfolio. And uh, I think our sector focus enables us to do that more than um, if we were making uh, generalist uh, investments. Now, I, I know you have, uh, I think you are one of the few funds which has created that uh, pool of strategic subject matter expert or advisory council. And, and some of those people are really great. Getting access to those people by the portfolio company is a great value addition. And, and I agree with you, providing your access connection and you're meeting with uh, so many people so you can always make connection introduction. And that's what startups need in the early stage. Uh, so this is my last question. Uh, and it's basically about what's happening in the market right now. So currently a lot of people are talking about that the funding winter is coming and we are seeing big pressure on startup to spend wisely. We are seeing layoff, we are seeing breaks on growth. We are seeing why combinator issuing a letter and saying, be careful for next two years and all. Do you have any view on the same and any advice uh, for the founder and how you are telling your portfolio company to be ready for next couple of years? Well, I can't, I can't pretend to know um, the macroeconomic picture better than anybody else you might uh, hear or read. Um, but uh, again, been around long enough to see uh, several <laughs> cycles. And um, the, the one thing that uh, I, I've become aware of is I think that the, the cycles actually uh, do accelerate. Maybe that's with uh, the uh, quicker movement of information. But um, that, gives, that gives me hope that uh, the, uh, the real rough quarter that, uh, or really, I guess the rough first half of 2022 that the financial markets uh, have seen, um, you know, uh, let's hope um, is, is going to stabilize and, and, and turn in the right direction uh, sooner than uh, in some of the other uh, events uh, that, that I can recall, like the uh, uh, dot-com crash of 2000, the financial crisis of 2008. But even in those cases, uh, if you look even just months after um, the, uh, the worst of it, um, it really was a, an, a, a period of tremendous uh, company creation. Some, of, some yeah. of the most important companies uh, that we're all familiar with were born uh, during, during uh, one, one of those crises. 
so uh, for us, the opportunity is as uh, great now as, as it was uh, six months ago. Um, for our companies, you know, it's, it's just common sense when, when uh, sentiment has turned down and, and when uh, a lot of people that you might have gone to to raise capital are uh, uh, being uh, much more selective about uh, their allocation of that capital, then uh, you have to look around at what you can do to make your capital go further. And that might mean uh, developing a little bit slower or growing a little bit slower. And uh, I think we're seeing all the companies do that. Um, a lot of VCs you know, set notices out to their companies to that effect. Uh, I've found that our, our CEOs don't, don't need to hear that from me. They, they read the same papers I do and uh, adjust accordingly. But it's obviously a topic of conversation. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, uh, some number of years from now, we'll turn back and say, hey, you remember uh, how uh, miserable things looked in uh, early summer 2022. That was exactly when uh, we made this investment and look where it is now. Yeah, no, I wish you good luck with that because I, I agree with your point. It's like more innovation happen when there are more adversaries and, and there are more tough, difficult times and all. So thank you, Michael, for that. I mean, we discuss about mobility, we discuss about technology, we discuss about latest trend and the investment uh, thesis. Now it's time to learn more about yourself. And uh, to that, uh, we have this rapid fire question round. We generally ask these five questions to people and we ask them uh, to answer them quickly, not, not to think too much, but just whatever comes to your mind. So if you're ready, I'll, I'll ask you these questions. Go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my first question is, if you were not in the policy or investment space, what other profession you would have selected? Well, one of my big passions in my teen years that I continue to have passion about is, uh, is harness racing, trotting and pacing horses. Uh, I did everything uh, in my late teenage years from uh, training and driving, uh, even calling races, uh, which I really enjoyed. Uh, so that, 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 that's one thing I might, I might be doing if I wasn't doing this. Oh man, uh, that would have been great, but uh, you're still doing a wonderful job. Now you travel so much around the world, which is your favorite city in the world? Well, I have to say that um, Jerusalem is special. Uh, that will always be uh, first on the list. Um, uh, my, my home, my home city is is New York, uh, and 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 I love New York. Um, I would never uh, choose to live very far from uh, from either, from from either of those cities, and uh, I'm lucky to, to spend time in, in in both of them. I'll tell you, Tel Aviv, um, which I've spent more time in than anywhere else in, in the last number of years, is also a, a sensationally exciting place, but you're right. I travel a lot and uh, I, I, I'm a runner. So I explore this, the cities uh, running and, and, and really love uh, what, what uh, the individual characteristics of, of everywhere I go. Great. Now you mentioned that you don't like to drive too much and all. So you must be using the transit system or transit network in the world. So I would say which city has the best transit network uh, in the world as per you? Uh, I would say, uh, uh, and it's not such an original answer, but I think New York and London have the best transit cities in the world. Uh, um, and, um, and, 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 and the addition of uh, micromobility in New York, we have our company Revel that has uh, electric mopeds, also has an electric rideshare service uh, using Teslas. That's uh, uh, worth trying out if you're in New York. Um, uh, and in London, I've, I've used uh, e-bikes in the last number of years. Um, but obviously in both cities, their uh, underground or their uh, subway uh, is a tremendous uh, way to get around. And you're right, I, uh, I, I, I don't uh, find most uh, driving enjoyable. Uh, occasionally in certain situations it is, 
but most of the time I find it to be distracting and, 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 and a waste of time. And I try to avoid it whenever I can. I can, I can vouch for that because when you, when you really want to see the city, you need to walk and then only you see the city properly. Otherwise, if you're driving, you miss the real soul of the city. So walking and running is the best way to explore the city. Now, the next question may be a little bit tricky for you because you know a lot of startup in the mobility sector and all, which is your favorite startup in the mobility sector? <laughs> uh, you can also ask me which is my favorite child. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's uh, that, that's uh, look. I I, I I'm thrilled. Um, with, I, obviously, I have a lot of passion for the sector and for uh, our uh, our portfolio in, in particular, and uh, and and really uh, find it uh, uh, you know amazing to be able to work with these companies and 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 to see all of the creativity that comes across. It's uh, uh, not really possible for me to sing, single one out. I can, I can, I can, I, yeah, it's, it's difficult to pick one. Like uh, you can't pick your one kids. I have twins. So for me, it's even more difficult choice to say which one is my favorite. <laughs> uh, now, last question is if you can change one thing in life, what would it be? Well, I think, uh, you know, the obvious answer for me would have to be go back to that early uh, 2007 period to uh, get on board at the uh, Tesla rather than better place. <laughs> <laughs> At least from a financial perspective, uh, would have been the right decision. Although I have to say that uh, so many of the blessings uh, of, of my life in the last 15 years have come from the involvement with Better Place, and uh, not a day goes by that I am not in touch uh, with uh, folks from that experience. That I, uh, I don't work with them in, in various regards. That Better Place to ask has gone on to do unbelievable things with all sorts of companies yeah. uh, in mobility, transportation around the world, and that's uh, been a blessing. But from a financial perspective, uh, certainly. If I could have uh, um, participated in the Series B or C or whatever it was at the time of Tesla, that okay. would have uh, would have been a nice thing that, to have done. But you know, I think yeah. I, I, I'd say um, that uh, from uh, the perspective of, of founders, as, as, as we were talking about, um, and, and, and those two companies with you know, very, very different uh, types of founders, but with uh, the same uh, creativity and ambition and um, and and uh, the uh, the, the um, most important point I think I'd make to two founders uh, out there is um, you know not to try to emulate those uh, founders or or anyone else because um, you know as as uh, Stephen Sondheim put it uh, anything you do let it come from you then it will be oh, yeah. everybody has to do um, what uh, comes uh, from deep inside of them and that's uh, the the only way to actual uh, success yeah and and you never know everything happened for a reason so probably. In your portfolio now you have billion dollar companies so you have so many amazing companies so now you will you will be one who will be building some of these trillion dollar companies <laughs> no i wish you wish you good luck with that sorry from your mouth. <laughs> thank you thank you so much michael for your great insight i really love this conversation with you and learn a lot from your experience it's been a pleasure thank you so much for hosting Thank you for listening to this podcast. We will be inviting some other inspiring guests in coming week. You can subscribe to this podcast online to get the notification for the next episode. If you like this podcast, please don't forget to give us a five-star rating as it will help us to spread our message. If you have any feedback or suggestion for this podcast, please do write to us at info at the rate mobility-innovators.com. I look forward to see you next time. Thank you.